4, which is page 1080 of the Church Bibles. It's Acts 4, 1 to 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Cyphus, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, 
the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Thanks, Justin. And uh, good morning, everyone. Come on, guys. It says there on a window there, it says, Oh, Lord, it is good for us to be together. It's good for us to be together. I'm going to pray. We'll get straight to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, uh, these, this text, this scripture. And uh, we do pray that um, it would shake us up and stir us up. And, Lord, it is good for us to be together. But we want to leave this place and our time together as changed people. So change us through your scriptures in the power of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I uh, worked in the publishing industry before I got into this ministry malarkey. Uh, and I was a writer. I used to write books. Uh, business and legal type books though. It's not as though I was churning out Harry Potter or anything like that. Although I do harbour a secret ambition to write a best-selling crime novel. Not a secret ambition anymore. So, um, of course, I've got a magic pen. Like, obviously, uh, writers need their magic pens. It's a fountain pen, but not one of those ye olde kind of worldy ones. It's a modern, sleek, barreled, German-made, Lamy fountain pen. Matte black in colour. Beautiful. And uh, distinctive writing needs a distinguished pen. That's kind of my view on these things. And here's how I know that it's a magic pen. Whenever I lose it, I cannot get anything done until I find it again. It just has that magic power of productivity about it. When I lose it, I just cannot focus on anything else until I recover it. I have to get it back. And that's why I've not brought it into the office yet, because someone's going to borrow it, which is just the Christian word for stealing anyway, and if that happens, I'll never get anything done ever again. Now, you and I both know the truth. It's not actually a magic pen, is it? It's just my favorite pen. And I really love it. And if I did lose it, I guess soon enough I'd work out a way to move forward. But what if I lost something really dear to me? Like a couple of weekends ago when uh, Michelle Levy, the Bondi schoolgirl, went missing. It was front page across the news all weekend because something of extraordinary value, a dearly loved daughter, had gone missing. And in that case, it kind of turned out all right because she returned home a couple of days later, although we do have that feeling or that sense of unease about what happened over that weekend in the company of a stranger, don't we? Because lost things bother us greatly. Now, what if we really believe that people are lost, not merely missing, soon to be returned, but lost in life and lost in eternity because they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour? What if we really believe that people are lost without him? That's the question we're thinking through today. And by this stage, we're in the back kind of end of our What If series, and where we're just trying to envision what our Christian lives, what our church could be like if we just took hold of the promises and claims of Scripture and we just narrowed the gap between what we say we believe and what we actually do. So what if we really believe that people are lost without Christ? How would that belief change our behavior? Well, first up for today, we we need to work out the exact nature of that problem, which we've already clearly stated, that people are lost without Christ. That's the problem, but what does it mean? Because it's not as obvious as a lost pen or even a runaway daughter. 
Now, Luke's gospel is very famous, isn't it, for this idea of lostness. You might remember there are three parables about lostness that kind of build upon each other in Luke chapter 15. There's a shepherd who's looking for a lost sheep. There's a woman, she's looking for a lost coin, an item of great value. Now, the scriptures don't really care about lost sheep or lost coins. They're, they're metaphors for lost people, and God does care about it. And so the, the chapter intensifies with the parable of the lost son, and it climaxes with the open arms of the father who welcomes back his wayward boy. Because God cares about people who've wandered away from him, people who have become estranged from him, people who, rather than yearn for him, yawn indifferently instead, or people whose lives are just set on a trajectory that's running opposite from him. And you know this kind of plays itself out in different ways, doesn't it? There, there are folks, and doubtless some of them are known to you, and their lives are just in free fall. You know, they're in a mess. They've got themselves into situations or relationships or habits that are just clearly damaging, and you can almost just visualize them wandering helplessly through the calamities of life. And look, this morning, where you're at, you might even be one of them. And it's as if life is like when you're at the beach and you don't see that wave coming or you just miss time in a bit and it throws you around so violently that for a moment you, you don't even know which way is the right way up. There's you know, that kind of undisguisedness about some people's lostness in life that reflects or is mirrored by their estrangement from God. But some people's lostness to God is actually disguised by an outward life that looks pretty together. Plenty of people like that in and around Manly, aren't there? You know, might have their working life together, might have their family life together. Their finances might be sound, their community involvement might be quite impressive. But it can still mask a, lot, a lostness from God, a lack of relationship with Him, a shortage of care for His ways and knowing Him as both Maker and Father. They, or it might be you if that describes you, might look like it's all sound on top, but it masks an estrangement they or you might feel from the one who made you and knows you and loves you. And there are some telltale signs of people like that. Um, one of them is just the desperation people feel when some of those things, family, finances, career, start to unravel. Or perhaps it's just in the restless way that people try to find ultimate meaning and significance and identity from things in life which just cannot carry such a heavy burden. When the things we thought would give us lasting happiness or satisfaction or completeness don't. Well, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, he was one such gentleman. He had a thriving business as a tax collector, even though it wasn't the hippest of trades at the time. Uh, from all accounts, he had a luxurious lifestyle. I guess he had a loving family as well. But there was something missing because when Jesus came to town, being a short fellow, <laughs> I can empathize, right? He uh, climbed up a tree just to find Jesus from amongst the crowd. And as the story goes, Jesus found him and stayed with him and saved him. And these are the words that Jesus says about him in Luke chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save what was lost. Zacchaeus was lost. Jesus sought him and found him, but he also saved him. You see, salvation has come to this house. 
And that's the real problem with being lost, isn't it? It's not just that we might be living a damaging or self-destructive life, or even if things are looking good at surface level, that there's a restlessness or an emptiness in our soul. The real problem is that our estrangement from God in this life will be mirrored by an estrangement or a distance from Him for eternity, and that will be far worse. Jesus spoke really openly about hell. 11 out of the 12 times that word is used in the New Testament, it's from the lips of Jesus himself. So we can't just overlook it because we find it distasteful. You know, being cut off from relationship, from the one who made us and knows us and loves us and is the source of every good thing, that is distasteful. And in addition to be eternally distanced from God, We're due the righteous punishment that our indifference or our active rebellion against him justly deserves. Now, that is what lost means Bible-wise. It means present distance from God, present estrangement, regardless of outward appearances and future judgment. And I think we would all agree that is quite a problem. It's quite a problem indeed. And so we're hopeful of a solution. And uh, you're thinking it's only been nine minutes and 34 seconds. Sure, the sermon's not over now, so we should move to the, the solution. And so secondly for today, here is the solution. The solution is the gospel of Christ. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise, but Acts 4 does give us a number of striking ways of seeing how the gospel of Jesus is the distinctive solution to the problem of the lostness of people without knowing Jesus. Now, as far as I can tell, we all have our pet solutions to problems uh, when we or someone close to us falls ill or gets sick. I recently had a virus and someone from the 630 congregation gave me this tip. They said, you need to steam ginger and brown sugar for half an hour. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good dipping sauce for spring rolls, but I'm not sure it's going to do much for my virus. But uh, when I used to run camps for kids, I had my pet solution And whenever any kid came to me for first aid, I would always say the same thing. I'd say, drink more water and eat more fruit. That'll do it for you. It really will. If you've got a headache, drink more water and eat more fruit. You've got a cold, drink more water and eat more fruit. You can't find your towel. Drink more water, (laughs) more fruit. Um, But look, even in in our family, we've got our own pet solutions. My magically babelicious wife, Carolyn, she thinks that Vicks Vapor Rub and Sorbeline are the solutions to just about all problems. It's a bit of a family joke in our household. But you see, Vicks is no good for a broken arm, is it? And certainly no good for a broken heart. And so all of those kind of solutions that we have, our little favourite solutions, they're just too generic. You know, water, fruit, Vicks, Sorbeline, and they just don't work. So what is so distinctive about the Gospel that makes it work? Well, four things from Acts chapter 4. Number one, it's a unique message, a unique message that culminates in the resurrection of Jesus. The background to Acts chapter 4 is a miraculous healing of a man who was born crippled. And uh, we learn in verse 22, he'd been crippled for over 40 years and then healed miraculously by the apostles Peter and John. And when Peter seizes the opportunity to preach the gospel, it really gets under the skin of the temple guard and the, the Sadducees, who were kind of the wealthy ruling class in Israel, who were in cahoots with the Romans and who didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And they didn't like these uneducated speakers of the message. And they didn't like the growing acceptance or popularity of the message either. 
in verse 4, it tells us just the number of male believers grew to 5,000, up from 3,000 at the end of Acts chapter 2. And it's not just that they were annoyed at these kind of unauthorized preaching by unprofessional preachers in the same way we might get irritated by an averagely talented busker out there on the corso. It was the content of the message that greatly disturbed them. Have a look at verse 2. They were preaching that you could be resurrected from the dead in Jesus. Now that was unique. The Sadducees didn't believe it like many folks in our day don't believe in life beyond the grave. But, but this was even unique among world religions because life after death was available in Jesus, in what he had done for us when he came to live the life we couldn't live, die the death that we deserved, and then rise again in victory over sin and death and the devil. You see, lots of religions promise life, but it always depends on what we humans do. But this was different. They were proclaiming resurrection and life in Jesus because of what he had done for us and not what we must do for him. It was a unique message. Next up, it's an exclusive claim. When the religious officials begin to question Peter and John, by what power or in what name did you heal this crippled man? Peter answers with great clarity. He says it's Jesus. It's Jesus, the one and only. Have a look at his words from verse 10, either in your Bibles or up here. You know this, he says. You and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man, this crippled man, stands before you healed. Down to verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved. You know, I don't think he could possibly be clearer. What name? Oh, the name of Jesus. Which Jesus, just in case? Well, that would be Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Remember the one you killed. You might recollect it. That's his name. And it's the only name by which you can be saved. You know, the word uh, healed and saved in the original language is the same word. And I think we're being told that this outward miracle that you could see this crippled man healed is meant to point to an inward salvation. You cannot be saved by anyone other than Jesus. He is not a way to God. He is the only way to God. He's not just a prophet or a miracle worker or a good man or an example of love or a great moral teacher. He is the exclusive way to be rescued from our lostness, our distance, our estrangement and the judgment of God and brought back into right standing and good relationship and friendship with him. There is no other name. It says there is no one else. Do you believe that? You might think it sounds just a little arrogantly exclusive. And if that's the case, I want you to see how inclusive Peter says that Jesus' solution of salvation for our lostness really is. In your Bibles, have a look at verse 10. He says he wants the rulers and the elders of the people to know it. But also in verse 10, he wants all the people of Israel to hear it. But then in verse 12, he says there is no other name, no other name given to mankind in general which provides salvation. The unique gospel that culminates in the resurrection is an exclusive claim to salvation. No other name but Jesus, but it is offered inclusively 
to all the people of the world. So there's a unique message. There's an exclusive claim to salvation. Next up there is an urgency to its proclamation. You can see that in verse 13 to 22. When the emergency meeting of the, the Sanhedrin, it's like a, you know, kind of a Jewish religious court, produces a gag order on the apostles. Uh, they were effectively saying, we don't know who you are, and we don't know how you've done this healing, but we just need you to shut up. And they couldn't deny it. They wouldn't acknowledge it. But they wanted to end it. And so they tried repeatedly to get it to stop. But Peter and John... <laughs> Know that there was an urgency about this message. There was an unstoppability to it. And so they say, we can't help talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. So we're going to obey God, not you guys. You know, uh, I heard in this past week, five Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian pastors in Houston, Texas, had their sermons and their other communications subpoenaed by the city government who were unhappy with their biblical stance on kind of sexuality issues. It's Houston, Texas, land of the free. And they're trying to get pastors to stop preaching the Bible. So anyway, the pastors wrote an open letter to the city mayor and they respectfully said, we oppose hatred that arises in any church, but we cannot bow to the winds of culture. In other words, they were saying, we will obey God and not you. We will obey God and not you. And that's what the apostles were saying too. This message, it's too great to stop talking about it. And here's the thing, right? People just keep believing it. Amazing. You know, in Africa and South America and right across Asia this very day, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. We need to remember that because I think we feel under siege in Sydney. Our Sydney Morning Herald reading, our 702 listening, our highly antagonistic secular society. But all across the world, the gospel is being heard and it's being believed. And perhaps a little less dramatically, it's still happening right here in Sydney. And that leads to the fourth aspect of the gospel solution that's worth remembering. It has the backing of the sovereign God of the universe. And you can kind of see this clearly when the apostles return to their own people in verse 23 and begin praying because they call upon God's sovereignty in creation. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and everything. Verse 24. They call upon his sovereignty over kind of the nations and the kings of the world in verse 25 and 26. And they recall God's sovereign control even over the villains and the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Have a look in verse 28. They did, that's the villains, what God's power and will had decided beforehand would happen. <laughs> I mean, God was over it all, they're saying. And God's sovereign control over all things forms the basis for their prayers that God would continue to enable them to speak the message of this gospel with great boldness and accompany it with the miraculous, a prayer which incidentally was answered almost immediately. The lostness of people without Christ is an acute problem, isn't it? Even if it looks like most of the folks in Manly and Surrounds have got everything going for them. But let me tell you, the solution is as distinctive as it is effective. There is a unique message of life 
and resurrection in Jesus. And he is the one and only saviour. It's a message with urgent application, but a message with the backing of the sovereign God of all things. What if we not only believe that people are lost without Christ, but that they could be found, that they could be saved, that they could be rescued through the wonderful gospel that centers on Jesus? What if? And if we believe that, what difference would it make to our behavior? If we narrowed that gap between what we say we believed and what we actually do, what would it look like? Well, with our money, let me be straight up with it. I think there is nothing more worthy of our coin. There is nothing more worthy of our dollar than getting the gospel out there. So I get to ask you to give generously and sacrificially and cheerfully to the mission partners we are supporting here at St. Matthew's, especially as Commitment Day approaches next week. Now, I don't think it's necessarily easy for us to be a gospel witness in Manly where people mostly think they've got life sorted and don't need God. But let me tell you, our mission partners, man, they are heroic. Don't you think? Going to deepest, darkest Europe. In Austria, where we think, oh, it's all Mozart and strudel and stuff like that. But actually, to be an evangelical Christian in Austria, at best, they think you're a bit simple. It's an act of you know, lunacy. At best, they think it's akin to being brainwashed by a cult. Or ministering in Africa where the ground is fertile, but man, there is just so much work to do. Or beavering away in Cambodia where the work is kind of painfully slow and the opposition is great in order that local pastors there can proclaim their gospel to a nation that needs it. Or our brother Neville in Broken Hill, who's not turned his back on his people or his heavenly father, but is kind of laboring to reunite one to the other. You know, when Nathaniel was here last week, I did think, you know, Broken Hill via Port Augusta and Mount Druitt doesn't sound to me like an easy way out. These people are heroic, and the gospel is distinctive and it's effective. And we are well off, aren't we? And uh, here's the thing, I reckon. From my personal experience, you never regret being generous. You know, after writing the check, after transferring the funds, you never look back and think, boy, I wish I'd never given that money away. That generosity has made me a worse person. Really stuffed up my life. You never think that. Like so many things in the Christian life, you can't wait for the joy before you do the action. Oftentimes the joy follows the discipline. Of generosity. You know, you may not feel like coming down here to pray in the middle of the night like we did two nights ago, but when you leave, boy, you're glad that you did. The joy follows the action, it follows the discipline, it follows the obedience. And you know, generosity will make you a better person. It really will. And it won't stuff up your life. And so I don't have any qualms, I don't feel awkward at all about urging all of us, including myself, to be generous. We're well off. Our mission partners are heroic, and we never regret being generous. And so I am planning to give, and I hope you are as well. But, uh, you know, in some ways there's even better news for us, which is that we can all be involved in this great mission of the gospel, even if we never leave the peninsula, even if we don't have a dollar to our name, because mission is always all around us. Man, you live in Manly or near Manly or, in fact, anywhere in Sydney. You, know, you, you don't need to go to the world to be on mission because the world has come to us, hasn't it? 
And it doesn't even need to be people from different national backgrounds. Just the people who are distant or estranged from the God who made them and knows them and loves them. People who haven't yet heard and received the message, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And look, I guess um, at this point, some of you will be thinking, well, it's easy for you to say because you're one of those minister types of people who find it easy. And look, it is true that some people are just more naturally gifted in evangelism than others. Some people just find conversations more straightforward. Some people just like talking more. They really do. And that's true. Now, to be uh, honest, I don't find it easy. Uh, I don't find it natural, uh, necessarily always enjoyable, or not awkward. Um, So if you are like me, and it doesn't come naturally, here are some possible ways that you could get started, even this week. You turn up to work, or you turn up to the school gates, or playgroup, or beach, whatever it is on Monday, and the question is asked, how is your weekend? And now it's going to be asked, dead set, it's going to be asked. And you just float it, I went to church, and it was good. Let me tell you, they'll be surprised when you say it was good. And sometimes there'll be a bite, a show of interest, and you just feed that, supply a little bit more information. Or let's say in your homes, you read a a story to your kids or your grandchildren if they're visiting you at breakfast or before bed. And every now and again, you just ask them if they have any questions about Jesus, any questions about God. Or let's say you and John like riding bikes. And uh, you think, well, more people is more fun. And so you go out riding bikes at some ungodly hour of the morning where you're not even sure you're human. And amongst the riding group, it's clear that you and John know each other and know each other well. And so the question is asked, how do you and John know know each other? And you say, well, we're in a small group together. And of course they're going to be like, what is a small group? Right? And there is an opportunity. On it goes. There's a visiting speaker who's uh, able to explain how religion or God stuff and science integrate and work well together. And so Penny asks her sceptical friend Linda to come along and they talk on the ferry home. Or Jackie and Jill have got new babies and they come along to mini mats where there's just gazillions of babies, right? There's, it's like a used car dealership of prams and there's toddlers and there's weary and bleary-eyed mums. And over time, as they get to know other mums, relationships are formed and conversations arise and invitations are extended. And I imagine that in your particular situation, there'd be ways where you could see there are little opportunities everywhere to speak intelligently and respectfully and non-defensively about the good news that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, in each case, as far as I could tell, it happens pretty organically. You know, where you live, where you work, where you play. It happens kind of relationally, through personal contact. And whether or not it happens via a formal St. Matthew's Church program, it involves the Word of God being deployed in conversation. And I think all of us here who are Christians can do that without traveling to any new frontier. It's just making the most of what's already around us. And so if, like me, you don't find this sort of stuff natural or easy, don't you think that's worth trying this week? I think it is. Now, just as we finish, it's true, isn't it? There's a a world of difference, really, between a lost pen and a lost person. And whether or not people look lost 
if someone is distanced from God now and has a bleaker future ahead, that, is a, that really is a weighty and a signal problem. But you know, it's not glib and it's not simplistic or flippant to say that the gospel of Jesus is urgent and as effective and as unique as that message is, really is the solution to the problem of lostness. So what if we really believe that people are lost without him? And what if we really believed that the solution came in his gospel? And what would we do with our money and our relationships and those opportunities and our lives? It's a question really worth pondering, isn't it? Let me lead us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, it is good to be here, but uh, we want you to stir our hearts to be generous, especially um, towards our mission partners, those heroes who have left us to go to far-flung places of the world to spread the good news of Jesus there. We want you to stir us up to not just be generous with our money, but to be involved and on mission here in Manly and, and surrounds, using the, the relationships, the conversations, the opportunities that are all around us to tell people who don't yet know you that they can be in wonderful relationship and right standing with you through all that Jesus has done for us. And so we pray this in his name. Amen.